Hi, uh, it's been a minute. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, this is Taylor uh, speaking on behalf of of myself and Cat. Yeah, July kind of disappeared into a black hole for Square Mile of Murder, um, and I'm here to tell you why. Basically, it was a hell of a month for the two of us. Cat um, started off, you know, on a real high note. Uh, starting off with her birthday, July 4th. And then she immediately got sick and lost her voice, which was a bummer. And it meant that we couldn't record. And then as soon as Kat's voice started to come back, I managed to get COVID for the at least second, possibly third time of this whole pandemic shenanigan time period. Uh, And this time around, it really knocked me back for like a solid two weeks. I was out of work. I was just kind of not able to do anything. And um, you can probably tell my voice still sounds a little bit weird. It's a little bit rough. I cough a lot. It's not pleasant. Um, But I am just starting to feel back to slightly normal-ish. But as you might imagine, that basically means we got like nothing done for the podcast. So now we are trying to get back into the swing of things as much as humanly possible at this point. We have a plan. So basically what's going to happen is for the rest of the month of August, we are going to be releasing some previously unheard on the main feed older Patreon bonus episodes so that You guys will still have something to listen to. It'll still be something that you haven't heard before. We're doing that so that we can give ourselves a little bit of time to get caught up and um, pre-record some content that we can start releasing in September. So that's what we're going to do. And uh, we've already posted a little update on Patreon, but basically uh, we paused Patreon's August billing cycle so that our lovely patrons weren't charged uh, for another month after we gave them basically nothing uh, the previous month. So that's what's happening there. If you do sign up for Patreon in August, you will still get charged. So just be aware of that. If you don't want to get charged in August, um, don't sign up in August. You can sign up in September when we plan to resume the billing cycle. It's a whole thing. Anyway, patrons will also be getting access to separate bonus episodes that we have not released, that we have not released to lower tier patrons before. So that's our plan. Basically, everyone is getting some kind of new, new to them episode. It's just not newly recorded episodes. Um, And yeah, we are hoping to really get back into the swing of things um, as much as possible. We really appreciate everyone and anyone who has stuck with us um, through this whole thing. And um, we can't wait to start looking at more weird and, and, and wacky crimes with all of you again. So thank you so much for listening. Stick around through August to hear some some new to you episodes and we will see you with new content again in September. Thanks so much guys.
Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Kat. And I'm Taylor. And welcome to another Square Mile of Murder bonus episode. Uh, And this week, we've got another dive into the history books for you, as we are so wont to do. Um, So let's get into it. Um, We may as well just be a history podcast at this point. I know. (laughs) It's just so fun. Yeah, they are really interesting cases. Yeah. Um, So for 16 years, New York City was under attack by a serial bomber. In the 1940s and the 1950s, the Mad Bomber, as he would come to be known as, there's a lot of as's in that sentence. Anyway, um, the Mad Bomber placed dozens of bombs around New York City in theaters, businesses, train stations, and libraries, and all, you know, all kinds of places. The bombs left the entire city on edge for years as the police desperately searched for their creator. Uh, Now, thanks to some smart thinking by investigators, the Mad Bomber case used one of the very first criminal psychological profiles created by a psychiatrist and opened the door for an entirely new investigation technique. Exciting. Yeah. Like, genuinely exciting. Yeah. (laughs) It's not me being sarcastic. For For once, once, it's not sarcastic. (laughs) (laughs) The first bomb was planted on a windowsill in the Consolidated Edison Power Plant at 170 West 64th Street on November 16th, 1940. The bomber left a note reading, Con Edison Crooks, this is for you. There is no shortage of powder boys. Signed, FP. Is that like FP from Riverdale? (laughs) I don't think so. Not in this case. Shame. (laughs) the first bomb was a crude device made of brass pipe and gunpowder with an ignition mechanism that used sugar and flashlight batteries it was put inside a wooden toolbox before being left on the windowsill the bomb was discovered before it detonated that's always good yes so we should probably give a little bit of background about consolidated edison since our bomber seems to have had it out for the company Consolidated Edison Inc., commonly known as Con Edison or Con Ed, is one of the largest energy companies in the U.S. The company was founded in 1823 as the New York Gaslight Company. Oh, I've heard of that. (laughs) But how much did you know about British energy companies before you moved here? None. Exactly. I still don't. Scottish power. You just give them your money. That's what I have. (laughs) Just give them money every month and hope everything works. Yeah. Yeah. So the New York Gaslight Company, later known as Consolidated Gas, and in 1901, the company purchased the Edison Illuminating Company. By 1936, electricity sales were vastly outpacing gas sales, so the company changed its name to Consolidated Edison. Uh. There are several subsidiaries of Consolidated Edison, including uh, Consolidated Edison Company of New York Incorporated, 
which is a utility company that provides electric and gas service throughout New York City and Westchester County, and steam service in Manhattan. And basically, if you live in New York City or the surrounding suburbs, you're familiar with Con Ed for better or worse. I certainly was when I lived there. Speaking from experience? (laughs) Oh, yes. (sighs) Just like constant issues. And after Hurricane Sandy, one of Con Ed's like um, power plants, plant locations was destroyed. And so it left the city without, a lot of the city without power for like months. Um, Or at least without reliable power yeah um so did you so did you you'd have been in new york city during sunday yeah i was evacuated out of our apartment building we were we were just in the corner of the evacuation zone and um when i came back we didn't have heat for a week and the entire we lived down in the financial district and just across the street from us was south street seaport which was completely like wiped out by the hurricane and by the time i moved from new york a year and a half later it still hadn't recovered so oh wow it was sandy was bad news um but yes so i've had my sh- fair share of uh encounters with coned and I'm, I'm happy to leave them behind, let's just say. <laughs> um, but back to our bomber. This first bomb left at the Con Ed power plant was just the start. In September, a bomb with a similar ignition mechanism was found in uh, the street five blocks from the uh, Con Ed headquarters at 4 Irving Place in Manhattan. Now, this bomb didn't include a note and it didn't explode, just like the first one. Um, the police thought that maybe the bomber had spotted a police officer and had dropped the bomb without setting its fuse. Um, And then, so that was uh, September 1941. Uh, Then the United States entered World World War II in December of 1941. What was that? Did I say that out loud? Yeah. Nothing. She was too late. (laughs) I mean, yes, there is that. Would I say a thing like that? Never. Um, But yeah, so in December 1941, police received the following note, which was written in block capital letters. I will make no more bomb units for the duration of the war. My patriotic feelings have made me decide this. Later, I will bring the Con Edison to justice. They will pay for their dastardly deeds. Again, signed FP. Um. Right. So, so this dude is happy to like bomb his country while they're not at war, but when they are at war, he's like suddenly really patriotic. Yeah, that's that's the, the gist, right? Yeah. It's- yeah. Okay. Just checking. I'm I'm keeping up. It's, it's fine. You just don't think too hard about it. Um, okay. So. That's my sweet spot. <laughs> so the bomber stuck true to his word. No bombs were planted for the duration of World War II. And actually, uh, the reprieve extended until 1951. But he didn't just like. Was that 
shame he couldn't keep it up for like the entirety of the Korean War and Vietnam Just War like and every other war you've been in since. Forever, yeah. No, he 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 had to he had to go back to bombing. You know how it is. So you just you love bombing so much, and you can't leave it behind forever. Um, but he wasn't just twiddling his thumbs between 1941 and 1951. Uh, instead of sending bombs places, the culprit sent taunting letters and postcards to police stations, newspapers, private citizens, and of course to Con Ed. Uh, and each letter was signed with the same initials, FP. But the break didn't last forever, unfortunately. And in 1951, the bomber struck again, 11 years after the first bomb was found. On March 29th, a bomb exploded in Grand Central Terminal, one of New York's biggest, busiest train stations. What's the other one? Penn Station. Penn Station, yeah. Uh, the bomb was dropped into a sand urn that was used to extinguish cigarettes on the lower level of the terminal near track 27. Shortly after the explosion, the phone rang in Grand Central in the Grand Central Oyster Bar. Blech. Uh-uh, oysters are the best. Oh, no. It's it's the texture. I, I can't know. They're delicious. Nope. No. Um, yeah, phone rang at the Grand Central Oyster Bar, which is on the same level. On the other end of the line, a man asked in a slightly accented speech, was there much damage? Nobody was harmed by this third bomb. Again, thankfully. thankfully. Yep. Uh, throughout 1951, the bomber continued his work. In April, a bomb exploded in a telephone booth in the New York Public Library without injuring anyone. In August, one exploded in a phone booth in Grand Central. He planted a bomb that exploded in a phone booth outside the Con Ed's headquarters at Fort Irving Place. And he mailed one to Con Ed from White Plains, New York. The bomb didn't explode then on October 22nd, the New York Herald Tribune received a letter, again in all caps, that read, Bombs will continue until the consolidated Edison Company is brought to justice for their dastardly acts against me. I have exhausted all of the means. I intend with bombs to cause others to cry out for justice for me. The letter also directed police to the Paramount Theatre in Times Square where they found a bomb that they managed to disable, and Penn Station, where nothing was found. Yes. Um, so, on November 28th, a locker at the 14th Street uh, IRT subway station was bombed. Again, no injuries. And at the end of 1951, the Herald Tribune received another letter that read, Have you noticed the bombs in your city? If you are worried, I am sorry, and also if anyone is injured. But it cannot be helped, for justice will be served. I am not well, and for this I will make the Con Edison sorry. Yes, they will regret their dastardly deeds. I will bring them before the bar of justice. Public opinion will condemn them. For beware, I will place more units under theater seats in the near future. FP. Um... I don't think we use the word dastardly enough, enough anymore. 
I think it's a delightful word. It is one of this guy's favorite words. <laughs> His favorite adjective. Yes. Um, so in 1952, bombs exploded at the Port Authority bus terminal with no injuries. In June and December, bombs exploded in seats at the Lexington Avenue Lowe's uh, movie theater. One person was injured during the December explosion, uh, which marked the first time that one of the bombs had hurt anyone. So despite all of the letters and bombs that this madman was sending out into the world, police struggled to track down potential suspects. It was obviously pretty clear from his letters that the bomber had a grudge against Con Edison. And so police assumed that he was a disgruntled former employee. They searched through Conned employment records, lawsuit records, mental hospital admissions, and vocational schools where bomb parts could potentially be manufactured. Uh, police asked newspapers not to print the bomber's letters and to play down the severity of the bombings, but it was becoming very clear to the citizens of New York City that uh, a crazy guy was setting bombs throughout the city. Uh, and as a result, people were afraid to take the subway or the train, to go to department stores, to go to the movies or to the theater. People turned in their neighbors and co-workers who they thought behaved strangely or knew too much about bombs. How much is too much? I know, right? <laughs> like, some? Any? Yeah. Um, I, I, just, I just love it. It's like, oh, they knew too they much knew about too much about How bombs. much is too much? Also, like, if you think about when this is happening, 1952, like, a lot of people will have served in World War II, not just yeah. men, but women who were building the bombs. So a lot of people yeah, probably know a lot about bombs right now. <laughs> yeah, and then the, the Korean War was yeah, pretty was, much straight after that as well, yeah. wasn't it? So you've got two major 50s. conflicts. Yeah. So... Um, I think uh, NYPD ha was real busy with everyone turning mm -hmm. in all their friends. Um, yeah. Yeah, and one woman even turned in her own husband when she suspected he might be the bomber. But he wasn't. <laughs> that made dinner time a bit... Awkward? Awkward. Yeah, I don't think... Uh, I think she might have gotten in trouble for that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so... Bombers still remained at large. Uh, because they weren't getting very far, the NYPD formed the Bomb Investigation Unit, which was a new group that was tasked with only working on bomber leads. As the name would suggest, Yes, right? yes, yeah. <laughs> In 1953, bombs went off in seats at Radio City Music Hall and the Capitol Theater, with both with no injuries. Uh, another bomb exploded near the Oyster Bar in Grand Central. This one was in a rental locker and caused no injuries. And an unexploded bomb was found in a rental locker in Penn Station. Police were starting to get sick of the bomber and his antics, and I can't blame them, really. Yeah, really. When Sergeant Peterdale of the Bomb Squad... Squad, oops. It kept, it kept auto-correcting that. <laughs> Of the bomb squad. <laughs> when Sergeant Peterdale of the bomb square squad. Squad square. <laughs> square squad. 
examined the debris from the Grand Central bomb. He told the New York Times that the bomber was, quote, a mental case in search of publicity. Just to yeah, put it so, nicely. <laughs> so like, oh, he need, he wants publicity, so let's tell the New York Times about him. Yeah, let's tell the New York real, Times real, that he's crazy. That'll That'll go over well. At the site of many bombings, police found a man's red sock. Uh, they believe the socks were used to suspend the bomb from a railing or underneath things. They also noticed that the bomber kept his explosives small and seemed to place them where they could do little damage. He also had the habit of calling in warnings to places where he had planted devices without ever giving away specifics about where they were hidden. In 1954, a bomb behind a sink in a Grand Central men's room exploded, injuring three men. One planted in a phone booth at Port Authority bus terminal went off with no injuries, and one was discovered in a phone booth that had been removed from Penn Station for repairs. So had the phone been removed from the booth? I think the booth had been removed from the station. So it... So, like, the whole structure with the phone in it and so the bomb. Was it so, was it found when it was removed? Yes. Yeah. Right. I think. That just didn't compute in my brain. So, they removed, removed the, the phone booth for repairs and they found the bomb. Yeah, they found the bomb inside the booth when it was off-site, I think. Okay. On November 7th, 1954, a bomb went off in Radio City Music Hall during an at-capacity screening of White Christmas. Uh, The audience numbered 6,200 people, and a bomb that had been stuffed into the bottom cushion of a seat in the 15th row of the orchestra level exploded, injuring four nearby patrons. But... Just love this part. But because the bomb had been inside a seat, the explosion was muffled by the heavy upholstery, and only those right around the blast even heard it. Uh, The film continued to play while the injured audience members were taken to a first aid room and 50 other people were moved to the back of the theater. It was only an hour and a half later, after the film and follow-up stage show was over, uh, that police cordoned off 150 seats and searched the area for debris. Wow. Yeah. You gotta see Wouldn't your Bing you Crosby kind of first. Notice, <laughs> when you kind of notice if there was like 50 people just being moved when uh, you think something was maybe going on. I know. And also, so like this is an at capacity screen. So you're talking every seat full. So you've got 50 people not moving to new seats, just standing in the back of the theater. <laughs> Wow. I just, like, I love the priorities that that these people have. Um, so if you're keeping count, and I think this is correct, we are now up to 20 bombs. I could be wrong. I did a quick finger count when I was writing this, but... I haven't been counting, so <laughs> I don't know. It's a lot. <laughs> Around 20. Um, so the 20th bomb exploded in 1955 on the platform of the IRT, I don't know if it's Sutter or Souter, I think it's Sutter Avenue subway station in Brooklyn. Um, Did you not venture to Brooklyn when you lived in New York? I did, but I didn't go to 
Sutter Avenue, I guess. <laughs> or if I did, I don't remember. And I don't remember a lot of things. So, um, uh, number 21 went off in a phone booth on the main floor of Macy's, uh, their flagship store on 34th street. Two more went off at Penn station in a locker and in a phone booth. And another was found at radio city music hall after a call warning about it had been, uh, called into the theater. Uh, in August of 1955, John, John Cena or Senna, but not the John Cena who's a wrestler. (laughs) Not that one. Yeah. I would say Cena because he's only got one N. Yeah. So yeah, different guy, different guy, different century. (laughs) Um, uh, John Cena was an upholsterer at the Roxy theater and he took a seat from the theater to his workroom. He needed to repair a slash in the seat's red cloth covering. But when he got the seat on his workbench, a bomb fell out of it. That is like some cartoon bullshit. Isn't it just? Um, so like. thankfully it didn't fall out and blow up. Uh, he and his manager immediately called police. And when police searched the theater for any other sort of clues or anything, they didn't find anything. They uh, cleared the crowds that had started to gather around the theater and the bomb disposal truck was brought in, which was a nine ton truck with a large woven steel cylinder that the bomb unit used to transport explosives out of the city to vacant areas. And we'll put a picture of this truck in the post because it is wild looking. Um, and to me, it's, it reminds me of like, a you know, like the very traditional, um, traveler caravan. Yeah. Gypsy caravan. Um, it, to me, it kind of looks like that. Yeah. To me, <laughs> to me, when I first saw it, I was like, what is that? Because all the photos are black and white. It looks like it's made out of wicker. Yeah. But it's... A, that's that's why my brain went straight to yeah. like travel a caravan. I was like, oh, what a nice bomb basket they've woven for themselves. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's nine tons and woven with steel. Yes. So it's... It's, it's, a, it's a manly truck. It's a manly, man manly caravan. Like, and I just love in the, the picture as well, like their bomb disposal, like safety suits are literally just like a lead vest, like the kind that you wear at the dentist when you're getting x-rays and a padded face mask. And that's it. What do you wear at the dentist? You, you put on the lead vest when they're taking x-rays so your insides don't get all ra- irradiated. No, they put a weird card thing in your mouth and tell you to take your nose piercings out. Oh, th- there's that oh, one Oh, they forget too. to tell you that. Oh. Oh, they forget to tell you that and they're trying to decipher an x-ray and like, oh yeah, your nose stood is in. I was like, well, you didn't tell me to take it out. Yeah, that's your fault. Um, two kinds of x-rays. Uh, but yeah, so we'll put that picture in because it's pretty cool if, you, if you're interested in sort of steel wicker engineering. They brought that in, 
Bomb Squad also found a two and a half inch pocket knife inside the seat, which was similar to other small knives found at previous bomb sites. And investigators theorized that the bomber often left knives inside seats when he planted bombs in case he was searched at the theater on his way out. Which, like, he wasn't worried about being searched with the bomb, but he was worried about being found with the knife, I guess. Yeah, I love that he's worried about being searched on the way out, not the way in. Not the way in, exactly. Um, so another seat bomb exploded at the Paramount Theater, and one patron was stuck in... Uh, was struck in the foot by bomb fragments, but just brushed it off and said he wasn't injured. He's like, I'm fine. <laughs> he did a, I'm fine, guys. I'm okay. Um, this bomb... Took two steps around the corner and then went, oh, my foot. Yeah. <laughs> he just wanted to put on a brave face. <laughs> um, <laughs> this bomb also had a pen knife stuffed into the seat. And the last bomb of 1955 exploded in a Grand Central men's room stall without causing injury. Then we get to 1956. In February, a young man reported an obstruction in a men's room toilet at Penn Station. Lloyd Hill, 74-year-old men's room attendant, attempted to clear the block with a plunger when all of a sudden the toilet exploded. That is not what you want in a toilet. No, never. Never, ever. Uh, porcelain shards, yeah, just... Porcelain shards shot everywhere. Try saying that fast. Yeah. Uh, striking hill and shattering part of the stall partition. Another attendant rushed in to find Hill's head bleeding profusely and another man wandering around the restroom dazed. Hill was taken away in an ambulance with severe injuries. Police found a sock in the watch frame along with metal fragments and immediately connected with the previous bombings. And at this point, the NYPD had over 30 detectives, including bomb squad members, investigating these explosions. They must have had one each by this point. Uh, Yeah, really. Like everyone, everyone claim a bomb. In April 1956, the police department issued a multi-state alert for a person described as a skilled mechanic with access to a drill press or lathe who posted mail from White Plains, was over 40 years old and had a hatred for Con Edison. They also issued a flyer picturing a homemade pipe bomb similar to the bomber's handiwork. And they distributed samples of the bomber's handwriting and urged anyone to notify them if they recognised it. Investigators also did a review of driver's licence applications in White Plains because the bomber liked to mail letters from there. In those applications, they found 500 potential matches to the bomber's printing and those names were combed through. Uh, In August, a guard at the RCA building in Rockefeller Center found a five-inch long piece of pipe in a telephone booth. One of his fellow guards thought thought this pipe would be handy for a plumbing project. So he took it home on the bus to New Jersey and the next morning it blew up on his kitchen table. (laughs) Thankfully, nobody was hurt. I just... I love the thriftiness. Yeah. Oh, there's a piece of pipe. 
and that'll be good. Yeah. I don't know what that'll be good for. I can use that. <laughs> oh, my family are exactly the same. I'm exactly the same. I just, But it's just like, oh, this time it was a bomb. <laughs> <laughs> On December 2nd, a bomb exploded at the Brooklyn Paramount Theatre, injuring six people in a crowd of 1,500. The bomb went off during a showing of War and Peace at the rear of the orchestra and threw metal splinters across several rows of seats, cutting three people. Three more people near the explosion suffered from shock. Investigators believe that this bomb was a shift in the bomber's tactics because there was no warning phone call before the explosion. Um, so the increased press attention after the Paramount Theatre bombing uh, brought the heat onto the police department for, you know, not finding the guy who's been bombing everyone for the better part of two decades. Um, so, I can understand that. Yeah. Um, so in response, police commissioner Stephen P. Kennedy ordered, quote, the greatest manhunt in the history of the police department. He called the bombers' crimes, quote, an outrage that cannot be tolerated and promised a promotion to any cop who captured the bomber. Then, on Christmas Eve, a New York Public Library clerk dropped a coin in a phone booth. As he bent down to pick it up, he looked up and saw a maroon sock held to the shelf in the phone booth with a magnet. Inside the sock was an iron pipe with threaded caps on each end. And after asking his coworkers what to do, he threw the device out the window into Bryant Park. I'd have left it where it was and just phoned the police. Amen. <laughs> Wouldn't have thrown it into although, a park. <laughs> although, if the park's empty, that's probably the best place to throw it. Yeah. But still. Um, so. You yeah, know. The bomb squad did show up, and more than 60 police officers showed up on the scene. And this was the 32nd device left by FP, but the police still didn't know who the heck he was. But This guy needs to get a better hobby. I know. Um, but one man wanted to change that. Captain Howard Finney, who was the head of the bomb investigation unit, decided that the NYPD needed to try a different approach. So on December, uh, on December 6th, four days after the Paramount Theater bombing, he and two other detectives headed off to visit James A. Brussel, who is a psychiatrist who had experience working with both criminals and patients with mental health conditions. Finney brought with him a huge bag of evidence from the bombings to Brussels' office at the Department of Mental Hygiene. He hoped that Brussels could deduce some defining characteristics of the bomber from the explosives planted and the letters that he wrote. Uh, so police already assumed that the bomber was suffering from some sort of mental illness, so Finney wondered if Brussels could tap into the criminal's psyche. And no police department had ever really tried this before. I'm going to say this is like pre-Mindhunter as well, isn't it? Yes. So yeah, this is the 50s. It's a very, very new yeah. technique that they're asking of, really. Totally new concept, really, in criminal investigations. Apparently, there were some very, very early um, 
criminal profiles, including one in the Jack the Ripper case. But in the grand scheme of things, this didn't really happen. Yeah. Um, so Brussel refused to help at first, citing his busy schedule and his reservations about testing his profiling techniques on such a high-profile case. But in the end, he couldn't resist taking part in the biggest manhunt in New York history. And I, I can't blame him. I mean, him. that is just everyone's calling, really, yeah. isn't it? Like, that's pretty enticing if, if that's your job, you know? Um, so psychiatrists usually learn about patients and then consider how they might react to difficult situations. But Brussel tried working backwards by evaluating the bomber's behavior to learn what kind of person he was. And he called this technique reverse psychology, but today we call it criminal profiling. And, um, and we call reverse psychology something else now. Yes. <laughs> um, Brussel was an enigmatic figure, to say the least. He was loud, animated, and quick-witted. He uh, wore a thin, pencil-thin mustache. Um, he had written an operetta and was known to make crosswords and meticulously drew the grids for them himself. Uh by all accounts, he was also a drug addict. Um, and what's the uh, the phrase about genius and lunacy? Go hand in hand. <laughs> um, Bordering on one another. Uh, a lot of people compare him to Sherlock Holmes, like drug addict. I can see that beautiful mind, all that shit. So, but despite all this, he was brilliant, and he was, in fact, exactly the man that the NYPD needed. After combing through the evidence Finney showed him, Brussel began to put together a picture of a man of the man who was terrorizing New York. He told Finney that the bomber was a textbook paranoid schizophrenic. Paranoid schizophrenics often worry that people are controlling them or plotting against them. Uh, they're antisocial and consumed with hatred for their imagined enemies. Anger towards their enemies also doesn't fade like most people's anger or grudges tend to. He noted that paranoid schizophrenics generally don't become fully symptomatic until the age of 35. So if the bomber had been 35 when he planted his first bomb in 1940, he'd have been in his mid-40s or older. So they were looking for a man because most bombers are men. His profile continued saying the man they were looking for uh, was precise, neat and tidy based on the presentation of his letters and the bombs. Brussel theorized that the bomber would be of Slavic origin because bombing was popular in Middle Europe and was as was the use of knives in crime and the bomber used both. That's interesting yeah he also guessed that the man would be an immigrant to the u.s or at least living in a largely immigrant community based on the formal tone of his letters uh, brussel believed the letters were first written out in another language and then translated to english he said the bomb would probably live in a northern suburb of the city most likely in Connecticut, which had a high concentration of Slavic immigrants, and because the letters were sent from Westchester County, 
midway between Connecticut and New York. He said the bomber would be well-educated, but hadn't been to college or university, would be an exemplary employee who was on time and well-behaved. He would be polite and courteous, but not friendly. He predicted that the man would be a loner with no friends and little interest in women and may never have had a girlfriend. Aww. And he may be living with an older female relative. Yeah. Um, and most remarkably of all, Brussel told Finney that when they found the bomber, he would be wearing a double-breasted suit with all of the buttons done up. Yeah, I mean, that's very much the fashion of the time. Everyone was well-dressed. Well, so his reasoning was that this guy always wanted to feel powerful and, you know, the sort of presence and flashiness of a double-breasted suit, it's something that he would be drawn to. But he also always needed to be in control. And that's why every single button would be buttoned on the suit. That was his theory. Mm. So Okay. We'll see. See what happens with that. Um, so, <laughs> Brussel convinced Finney to widely publicize the profile. Uh, predicting that any wrong assumption within it would spur the bomber to respond. So, the New York Times published a summary of the profile on Christmas Day in 1956. Um, and as a result of the coverage of the public library bomb and the publication of the profile, bomb hoaxes and false confessions, uh, which had been happening on and off throughout the Mad Bomber's campaign, rose to uh, feverish rates. And at the peak on December 28th and 29th, police received over 70 false bomb alarms. Which... I mean, why do people do that, you know? I don't know. Just seems like such a dick move. It's like when, it's like when people like insert themselves into a crime yes. or a, a case. It's like, why? Just stop it. Stop it. Mm. Um... The day after the profile was published, the New York Journal American published an open letter put together with help from the police urging the bomber to turn himself in. Uh, they promised a fair trial and offered to publish his grievances. And the bomber wrote back the next day saying oh, that he would not. He's very. He's prompt. He's very courteous. Yes. Yeah. Well, he's courteous. Oh, yes, I must reply immediately. Yeah, he's courteous but not friendly, remember? Well, of course. Um, so he wrote back and said that he would not be turning himself in and he wanted to, quote, bring the Con Edison to justice. He listed all the places he had planted bombs during that year and he even seemed concerned that not all of them had been found. Um, he noted that the bombs found at the public library and at the Paramount Theater had been planted months before their discovery. Uh, he wrote, quote, Placing myself in custody would be stupid. My days on earth are numbered. Most of my adult life has been spent in bed. One consolation is that I can strike back, even from my grave, for the dastardly acts against me. The Journal American published an edited version of the bomber's response on January 10th, 
and also published another open letter urging the bomber to provide more more information about his grievances with Con Ed. The bomber responded by giving more details about his bombs as well as why he hated Con Ed so very much. He wrote, I was injured on job at Consolidated Edison Plant. As a result, I am adjudged, totally and permanently disabled. He wrote that he had to pay his own medical bills and that Con Ed had blocked his workers' compensation case. Continuing. When a motorist injures a dog, he must report it. Not so an injured workman. He rates less than a dog. I tried to get my story to the press. I tried hundreds of others. I typed tens of thousands of words. About 800,000. Nobody cared. I am determined to make these dastardly acts known. I have had plenty of time to think. I decided on bombs. Mm. I mean, obviously we don't condone vigilante justice, (laughs) but... Sounds like a, you've got to do something to get your attention. Yeah, get attention to your case. But bombing an entire city is not the answer. Yeah, probably there are probably other ways to go about that. The newspaper asked again for more details of his compensation case, and the bomber responded again. The paper received his letter on January nineteenth. This third letter described his accident and that he had been left lying on the cold concrete for hours with nobody giving first aid for his injury. He said he had developed pneumonia and tuberculosis after the accident. He wrote about the compensation case he lost and the co-workers who he claimed perjured themselves. He also gave the date uh, of his accident as September 5th, 1931. He also thanked the Journal American for publishing his letters and promised the bombings would never be resumed. See, you just wanted to vent. Just wanted someone to talk to, really. While all this was going on, uh, Consolidated Edison, Clark Alice Kelly, was already hard at work. She'd been tirelessly searching through workers' uh, compensation files for the bomber. On Friday, January 18th, 1957, she was searching through a batch of, quote, troublesome case files. Cases where threats had been made or implied, and she found a file marked in red including the words injustice and permanent disability, which were words the bomber had used in his journal American letters. So who did this file belong to? Well, the file belonged to George Metesky, who had been an employee at Con Ed from 1929 to 1931 and had been injured in a plant accident on, you guessed it, September 5th, 1931. Uh, In the file were several more letters with similar wording and phrases to the bomber's letters. So Alice Kelly immediately contacted police, who received the call at about 5 p.m. Metesky lived in Waterbury, Connecticut, and NYPD asked the Waterbury police to do a discreet check at his address that night. And initially, they treated the tip as just sort of one of a number of promising leads that they were following up. Um, so that was January 18th. Or, yeah, 
January 18th, the Journal American got his letter on January 19th. Then on Monday, January 21st, four NYPD detectives and Waterbury police officers arrived at George Metesky's house with a search warrant a little before midnight. While they were there, they asked him for a handwriting sample and to make the letter G, which had been distinctive in the letters. So he wrote the G and then looked up at the detectives and said, I know why you fellows are here. You think I'm the mad bomber. Uh, detectives then asked what FP stood for, and Metesky replied, FP stands for fair play. Um, so Metesky then took them to his garage workshop where they found his lathe, remember one of the tools that they were looking for. Uh, in the house they found pipes and connectors similar to those found in the bombs, cheap pocket watches, flashlight batteries, and unmatched wool socks. They had definitely found their madman. Um, when police had arrived at the house, it was late at night, so uh, Metesky had been wearing pajamas when he opened the door. Police told him to go upstairs and get dressed so he could be taken to the station. When he came downstairs, he was wearing a double-breasted suit with all of the buttons done up. Sherlock Holmes was right. Yeah. Uh, now, a little background on George Metesky. George Peter Metesky was born on November 2nd, 1903 in Connecticut. After World War One, he joined the U.S. Marines and served as a specialist electrician at the U.S. Consulate in Shanghai. Um, when he returned home, he went to work for Con Edison as a mechanic and lived with his two unmarried sisters in Waterbury, Connecticut, which had a large Slavic immigrant population. He had been injured on the job at Con Ed's Hellgate, in Hellgate generating plant. Well, what would you expect with a name like that? <laughs> when a boiler backfire shot out a blast of hot gases. The blast knocked Metesky to the ground and fumes filled his lungs. The accident left him disabled and after collecting 26 weeks of sick pay, he lost his job. His claims for workers' compensation were denied because according to Con Ed, he had waited too long to file them. Three appeals were also rejected, the last of which occurred in 1936. During interrogation, he gave the police a list of 32 bomb locations and remembered the exact date when each had been placed, as well as the bomb's size. He also gave the police a surprise when he told them that he had planted 15 other bombs at Con Edison locations that had never been reported. Metesky said that when his early bombs hadn't been reported in newspapers, he started planting them in public places to gain more publicity for the injustices that had been done to him. He also confirmed that he had abstained from planting any bombs during World War II for patriotic reasons. A grand jury was convened and heard testimony from 35 witnesses, including police experts and those injured by bombs. The grand jury indicted him on 47 charges, including attempted murder, damaging a building by explosion, maliciously endangering life, and violating New York State's Sullivan Law by carrying concealed weapons. 
Seven counts were for attempted murder based on those injured in the previous five years, which is all that the statute of limitations allowed. Metesky was brought in to hear the charges from Bellevue Hospital, where he had been undergoing psychiatric evaluations. After hearing from psychiatrist Judge Samuel S. Leibowitz declared Metesky a paranoid schizophrenic and, quote, hopeless and incurable both mentally and physically. The judge found him legally insane and incompetent to stand trial. Um, on April 18, 1957, George Metesky was committed to the Matawan Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Beacon, New York. Because of his advanced TB, he was uh, only expected to live for a few weeks and had to be carried to the hospital. But after a year and a half of treatment, his health greatly improved. Um, he didn't ever respond positively or at all, apparently, to psychiatric therapy. But by all accounts, he was a model inmate and didn't cause any trouble during his incarceration. He often had visitors, including his sisters, and his profiler, James Brussel, whom Metesky often reminded that he had deliberately built his bombs so that they wouldn't kill anyone. In 1973, the Supreme Court ruled that a mentally ill defendant cannot be committed to a New York State Correctional Hospital unless a jury finds him to be dangerous. Because Metesky had been committed without a trial, he was transferred to Creedmoor Psychiatric Centre, a hospital which was outside of the correctional system. There, doctors determined he was harmless and because he had already served two-thirds of the maximum sentence of 25 years he could have received at trial, they decided to release him. He was released on December 13th, 1973, on the condition that he regularly regularly visited the Connecticut Department of Mental Hygiene clinic near his home. He returned to his home in Waterbury, where he lived until 1994, when he died at the age of 90. James Brussel had pulled off what seemed like a magic trick by creating his highly accurate criminal profile. He went on to publish a book in 1968 called Casebook of a Crime Psychiatrist that detailed his profile and approach. His methods were taken up by the original founders of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit and later by famous profilers Robert Ressler and John Douglas who then formed criminal profiling into what we know it as today. Years later, it was discovered that Con Edison had withheld employee records from the police for years, seriously impeding the progress of the investigation. The investigators only learned of the records' existence on January 14th, and even after police sent formal requests for the records, Con Ed demurred, saying that they were legal documents that couldn't be uh, consulted by just anyone. It is the police asking. It's not like exactly. an FOI request. It's not even an FOI request. <laughs> it's literally the police. And they went through like yeah. all the proper channels. And yeah. So <laughs> uh, the president of the company later called this a, quote, misunderstanding. I'm sure, dude. Like all 
you know, it's like everything. Oh, it was just an admin error. Yeah. It's like, it's like, you know, the new track and trace app. Yeah. Serco, who've developed it, accidentally sold the information of the testers for that app. <sighs> Hundreds of people accidentally had their data sold. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Due to just, an administrative error. It's a misunderstanding. No, you did it on purpose. Yeah, exactly. For your own ends. Exactly. Um, so that that happened. Um, Alice Kelly, the clerk who found Metesky's file, was offered uh, the $26,000 reward that had been promised to anyone who found the bomber. Uh, but she denied... Uh, the money, saying she had just been doing her job. Yeah, well, this is a good payday then, love. I know, you right? Know. It's like, take, take the money, girl. Your employer clearly isn't going to have your back in the future. Just take the no. money and run. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go on a yeah, nice you need vacation. A nest egg. Yeah. Mm. Um, yes, so that is the story of New York's Mad Bomber and the terror he brought to the Big Apple for. 16 years. Uh, so, what do we think? Uh, it's a difficult one because, of course, you can't condone vigilante no. uh, justice. But if you've exhausted every possible avenue, what other way do you have to do it? And I mean, arguably it would have been, you know, some sort of response to the early. If you decided to go down that route, you would have just, you know, after like publicity for the first few bombings, then write your letters. Don't yeah. keep doing it for 16 years. Yeah. That's the thing. Um, like, what's so interesting to me as well is that like all it took was one open letter in the newspaper for him to like start spilling his guts. So Yeah. I, I don't know why they didn't try that before. Yeah, that that's the thing, like I mean obviously hindsight's twenty twenty and all the rest of it. But yeah. yeah, that's all it took was one one newspaper or one publication responding to him. Um it, it's a difficult one. Yeah. I think what's really interesting about the case is the sort of profile and and how that started a whole new field, basically. Yeah, um, definitely, because the, the sort of pop culture opinion is that, you know, Mindhunter. Yeah, was yeah, the, the BSU. Or, and, or, you know, the story that's that's based on. yeah. Um, was like the original um, when it came to offender profiling, which, yeah, okay, it was in terms of serial killing. Yes. But, like you say, there was sort of hints of it during the Jack the Ripper investigation. Yeah. Which was like 1888. Yeah, like it's, um, like bits and pieces of it had been used in other cases. And then it all kind of, came together in this one of like, well, let's actually, let's create the image of who we think is, is doing this. Yeah. 
that is really that is really interesting it is is incredible like right down to you know the buttoned up jacket yeah, the the suit um was okay so so Mateski was born in Connecticut mm-hmm. was he of was he the child of of immigrants cuz it does sound like a it's sort of maybe yes. polish or eastern european name he's he is from some slavic country although in in my sort of cursory research as i was finishing this up i could not find out where his parents were from but they as far as i know he was a first generation american in waterbury yeah. um, so his parents would have been would have immigrated from eastern yeah. europe eastern europe yeah so and like there are some differing accounts about brussels profile that say mm. in his original profile he got a bunch of stuff wrong um mm. but and then in his book that he published in 1968 he sort of like retconned some of that but the things he got wrong were like he thought that maybe the guy lived in white plains or in you know somewhere in new york instead of connecticut but he's you know you still got like northern suburb suburb of hmm. the city pretty pretty good and everyone revises their own history yeah exactly especially when you're the first person to do it you're gonna be like yeah. oh yeah i got it all right it's like it's fine we'll guys. just sweep this little bit under the rug also by all accounts the man was a lunatic and like <laughs> very full of himself so not surprised that he polished up his career in his own book yeah and you know off his tits most of the time yes yeah so he just could have misremembered quite easily as well yeah uh but yeah i i just i heard about that one i think i first came across the case when i was on a sort of wikipedia like mystery rabbit hole of like I'd started off looking at you know the the Wikipedia page for George Washington and then somehow I ended up on the Mad Balmer case that is quite the rabbit hole trail I swear to god I feel like that's what always happens to me (laughs) but it's a it's a fun one and actually we'll put in the in the notes um there's a really great uh, video on YouTube that the New Yorker put together about the case, and they do a. a it's just like it's all in bl- shot in black and white, and like it's just really nicely put together. So, highly suggest you go watch that and check that out too. Well, so yeah, that's the Mad Bomber. Um, let us know what you think about the case. Uh, you can tell us in the comments here on Patreon or on our various social medias. Um, we're always there. So come hang out. Um, yeah. And be sure to check out uh, some of the links below, like we mentioned. And yeah, uh, follow us and stay tuned. Yep. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll see you soon. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.